Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Following Thursday's Conservative Party leadership debate and the accusations that candidates leveled at each other, differences within the Conservative Party of Canada, as well as animosities among leadership candidates, appeared increasingly to be going public. And uh, interestingly, this past week, Global News was reporting there may be as many as 500,000 members eligible to vote for the new party leader who will be announced on the 10th of September. Last time, in uh, 2020, it was 249,000 members. Now, uh, we could be at 500,000. What disappointed me as far as this uh, debate was concerned was that the, the leadership aspirants, the candidates, had a lot to say to each other. They were challenging one another. And yet the moderators kept saying, rebuttals to come. Hang on. Don't rebut now. You can rebut later. What happens is the flow is interrupted. The conversation comes to a halt. When you get back to the rebuttal, whenever that happens to be, you almost don't remember what the point was that you were making because you're so engaged and involved. One of the more interesting exchanges was between Dr. Leslin Lewis and Pierre Polyev. And Dr. Lewis joins us on the program now. Dr. Lewis, thank you for taking the time. How did you assess that debate? Well, I assessed it from my perspective, which I thought that I did very well. I executed my position and I was able to call out people that I didn't feel were being forthright with their position. Okay. So there are clear differences, clear among candidates. And, and that became very evident. There was much challenging going on, and you certainly challenged the perceived frontrunner, Pierre Polyev. Where does Mr. Polyev fail as far as you're concerned? Let me ask you that first. Well, I, I think it's very important that people, that candidates are upfront with what their positions are. If you're going to lead this country, you have to lead for everyone. You have to be able to engage all different perspectives. And hiding who you are, hiding what you believe in, is not going to go over with your opponents and with the liberals. They are going to be able to extract from you what your positions are. So it doesn't really matter what your viewpoint is on a certain issue. You just need to be confident and courageous enough to articulate it. Not everybody's going to agree with you on the position, but Canadians need to know where you stand. Yeah. It's about honesty. It's about understanding. It's about believing the candidate, whether it's at the constituency level or the national level. You have to believe what the candidate is saying in order for that candidate to earn your vote. Why should Canadians consider Dr. Leslie Lewis to be the best candidate for Prime Minister of Canada? Because I will give our party the best chance to win. Not only that, I believe that it's very important that the next leader is able to build bridges, build, bring people together. Our country is in trouble, and many people are crying out for hope and for opportunity. We need somebody with not only parliamentary experience, 
but real life experience that can relate to the average Canadian, that understands what it means to build a business, understand what it means to create wealth, understand what it means to maybe not be able to know where their next meal is coming from, standing in a grocery line and not knowing if your debit card is going to go through, not someone who's had a paycheck their whole life, someone who's struggled and made it from the bottom up and can relate to Canadians and then help build this country back. Right now, our country is being run by a minority of woke politicians. The, the minor woke population is ruling over the majority, the silent majority. And we need to turn things around and give people back their power and their freedom. Dr. Lewis, there is a perceived divide, probably a real divide, among conservatives, um, within the Conservative Party, social conservatives, others who decide to define themselves as not being social conservatives. There's a divide on uh, abortion and, 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 and gay marriage. As we watch the party evolve, would you speak to that, please? How do Canadians, and you talk about uh, needing to understand that, that you're the person who can bring the country together, can you bring the party together? important that first of all we recognize that every voice is important and we have our party is a microcosm of society so we have divergent voices we're not a group think party and so when we celebrate the various voices and we we allow them to shine i think it will build a very strong united party with respect to the divergent perspectives yes i'm defined as a as a social conservative in my life as a, as a lawyer, I represented the LGBTQ plus community who were persecuted in their country and came to Canada fleeing persecution as refugees. Many of those people landed in Canada with my phone number in their pocket because I believe in the inherent dignity of all human beings. And so it's very important that Canadians know what you believe, what policies you will form, where you stand on issues. And when we run away from that, it's basically saying... Yeah, I, we're I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. But can you bring this party together? Can you Look, we've seen uh, two leaders now that weren't able to deliver the party in such a way to Canadians to have to form government. And, you know, the Jean Charest was talking about needing to satisfy the greater Toronto area. <laughs> Maybe you have some comment on that. But you have two leaders now that were elected by the party who said they would pull the party together. They weren't able to do it to the satisfaction of Canadian voters. Can you do that? I absolutely can, because I think it's important that we focus on what our strengths are, on our unified voice. When we begin from the premise that some voices need to be silent, that some perspectives need to be hidden, and we buy into this wokeism, that is when our party will continue to be divided. I have been very, very vocal in telling people who I am. And also by saying, I will formulate policies that will uplift the entire Canadian population. Everybody will prosper under my leadership. And so that's the type of voice. Justin Trudeau's policies. I'm sorry to rush you, but we got started a little late. Which of Justin Trudeau's policies would you immediately address, and which of Mr. Trudeau's policies would you judge to be most harmful to Canada and Canadians? Any policy that infringes our charter 
Canadians never again should feel that a government can freeze their bank accounts and confiscate their property without a court order. Canadians now are facing mandates and they cannot travel because they're unvaccinated. I would immediately get rid of that. I would immediately restore Canadians to their jobs who have been discriminated against because of their vaccination status. We have ways to reasonably accommodate. I believe that we should do that. All right. Now, energy exports. Let's talk about that. But before we talk about energy exports, let me just draw the attention to what Canadians are seeing today. You're seeing it as well if you're out there. You're seeing the price of gasoline just spiking. Mr. Trudeau has increased the carbon tax, intends to increase it uh, threefold by 2030. Um, What would you do about the carbon tax, about the cost of energy and our inability as a nation to export the actual fuels we have, the energy supplies we have in abundance, but we can't get them overseas. What would you do? I would get rid of the carbon tax. There are more efficient ways to protect our environment without burdening average Canadians, heating their homes, filling up their gas tanks. I would repeal Bill C-48, Bill C-69, and allow Canadian energy to thrive. We have the third largest accessible oil reserves on the planet. We have the most ethical and environmentally friendly standards. We should be able to get our LNG to market, offset the 40% dependency of Europe on Russian oil, and enrich our country. We need to bring our supply chains home, not only in the area of oil and gas, but in food, in industry. We need to start producing more in Canada and bring down the cost of living for everyone. Okay, very much so, the truth. Let me ask you one more question in the time that we have left. Mr. Charest pointed several times to the Greater Toronto Area, the GTA, and pointed to the failure of the Conservative Party of Canada to gain even a, a nominal number of seats in last year's election. I think it was four seats out of what, 54, 55? And he talked about needing to be able to generate that kind of return from the GTA. When Canadians across the country hear GTA, they hear, oh, my God, Toronto again. How do you reconcile the power of Toronto, just by just numerically with the number of seats of Parliament, with the national uh, desire to be represented? Because you know what the feeling is in some parts of the country. Toronto gets everything first, and then we get what's left. What do you say to that? Well, I think there are areas of the country, like the West, uh, the East to some extent, and, and other areas that have been completely overlooked and disrespected by Ottawa. We need to change that. We need to make sure that every Canadian feels valuable and every region feels valuable. But there is a real problem in the large urban centres for the Conservatives. We, and those areas have large immigrant populations. We need to find ways to reach out to those populations. I believe that my success story as coming here as five, at five years old, achieving the heights of the PhD, running for the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, that that success story resonates with the average immigrant family who came here, left everything behind, has strong faith values, strong family values. So I believe that I'm in a unique position to reach out to those centres and to win those areas for our party and in the general election. The leaking of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, potential decision concerning overturning Roe versus Wade, which granted federal constitutional protections for abortion rights, 
has echoed not only through the United States, but internationally. It's been talked about and written about a great deal in this country. So a draft of a majority opinion of the SCOTUS justices appears to indicate the court may well decide to do exactly that, and that is remove the constitutional protections for abortion rights. My guest has written in response, while the leak itself is shocking, the substance of the decision is more shocking and will have a significant impact on the people's trust in the court. My guest is law professor Anne Marie Lofasso from the University of West Virginia. She's the Arthur B. Hodges Professor of Law at West Virginia University's College of Law. Professor, thank you very much for taking the time. You've said the leak is shocking, the decision even more so, and it will significantly impact the people's trust in the court. Speak to that, please. Well, first, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on this really important issue. Um, it's, it's significant and it's shocking, first of all, of course, because you have for the first time in history an entire first draft or any draft of a Supreme Court decision being uh, leaked. And that's just shocking. Uh, it's shocking because it came out, all these decisions always come out around 10 a.m. in the morning toward and the important one, the really significant ones come out in June or July even. And this came out in May, came out in the evening. So that all adds to the context of why it was shocking. But the decision itself makes it even all the more shocking because rather than just sticking to what the issue was, which was just whether this particular state law which um, banned abortion um, anything after 15 weeks, uh, just decided to completely overturn um, Roe versus Wade and, and Casey, which are the two main precedents in the area of a woman's reproductive freedom. So that it didn't have to go that far, and it's just decided to do that. Also, the reasoning of the decision is shocking because the, re the reasoning is based first on the idea that uh, they can't overturn the precedent that states that this is not a woman's issue because their, their cases say that this is not, a, this doesn't only affect women. So in other words, that means they completely, in the very beginning, forego and, e forego and foreclose an equal protection analysis. Yet they're willing to overrule the substantive due process analysis. So should I explain the difference between those two? Yes, please. Okay, so in our 14th Amendment and our Fifth Amendment, which are part of our amendments to the United States Constitution, we have, um, the, we have the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. The Equal Protection Clause says that the government cannot act in a way that um, treats people differently um, based on be, before the law, that all people are equal before the law. And the way the case law has come out is that if you're part of a discrete insular minority, um, then you then the court will scrutinize very heavily whether or not the government's action is is creating something unequal. So one of those um, suspect what we call a suspect class is gender. So if the government decides to either facially treat women differently or it has a disparate impact on women and there's an intent to have a disparate impact on women, 
then the then the, the court has to scrutinize that very heavily and chances are the law would be struck down so obviously uh, abortion affects women disparately than men but the court's decisions say that's not true um that it doesn't it has nothing to do with gender and it refused to re to relook at that line of cases knowing because if it did that that these abortion laws that are restricting abortion would have to be over would would have to be overturned meaning a law like in Dobbs wouldn't withstand scrutiny now the substantive due process clause which is part of the same amendments says that no one can deprive a, a person of life liberty or, or property without due process of law and there's two parts of that. One is the procedural parts, which we're not going to talk about today, and the other is the substantive parts, which says that the, that the United States is not allowed, or not just the United States, but no state, no government actor can make laws or enforce laws that affect fundamental rights. So here at issue is a woman's fundamental right to um, not just have an abortion, but to actually have bodily autonomy if you the narrower you define that right the easier it is to strike it down so the very first page of this opinion defines the right not as a woman's right to control her body but as a woman's right to have an abortion so of course it's going to be more difficult to defend and then the reasoning goes on to explain that there's nothing in the Constitution that states that a woman um, has a right to an abortion. Now, importantly, in the last 50, more than 50 years, since at least 1965, if not before, the courts have interpreted, in particular the Supreme Court, has interpreted the substantive due process clause sort of like a human rights clause. And that there's certain rights. May I just interject and ask you a question? Yes. I just want to ask you a question on that point. Yeah. The draft decision states, if I understand it correctly, that abortion is not rooted in U.S. quote history and traditions. Is that what you're talking about right now? Yes. So there's two ways of looking at this. There are what's called enumerated rights and unenumerated rights. So social conservatives want to interpret the constitution as only only protecting enumerated rights which means you have to find it expressly in the constitution the problem with that is that no woman and no minority had any rights at the founding it was only a subset of white men who owned property and maybe some some other white men so not even all men so um, and not even all white men. So certainly not women. Women were property of their husbands or their fathers at that time. And um, minorities were mostly, if you, there were minorities in the country, they were mostly Africans or Af then African-Americans and mostly enslaved. Uh, Dr. Lofasso, if I can just maybe cobble together a hybrid question for you then, to the, putting the together the two questions I thought of before the break. So is this a judicial or political decision? And then the second part of that would be, 
22 states, as I understand it, I think you wrote about this, have an abortion ban or near ban in legislation which cannot be enforced because of Roe versus Wade. So if the final decision by the Supreme Court is as the leak strongly suggests, would that make those 22 states, those laws or bans in those 22 states, immediately enforceable? Okay, so as to the first part of your question, it's both a judicial and a political decision. It's judicial, obviously, because it's within the court is deciding. But I think the political aspects of it are really on display by showing that the court refused to revisit its equal protection precedent, but was more than willing to jump and overturn um, Roe and Casey, Roe after almost 50 years, even though it didn't have to reach that issue. So that shows the political nature of this. Um, I think also given that um, the Republicans uh, refused to allow Obama to put a judge in, that was Judge Garland, uh, onto the Supreme Court, and then um, Trump was voted in, and Trump promised to have Roe versus Way overturned and put into um, into the Supreme Court three people that were sympathetic to overruling Roe versus Wade shows that there is definitely a political dimension to this. Now, as for the 22 states, um, the states, I don't know the law of every single one of them, but most of them have been in what's called enjoined, which means a court has said they can't be enforced. So all we take at most would be for the attorney general of that state to go into court and lift the injunction. Now, of course, someone could try to um, to oppose that lifting of the injunction, saying that the state legislatures have to reenact that law because there's been superseding uh, to Supreme Court precedent. And my guess is that most state courts will not require that and that the lifting of the injunctions will um, happen within days, um, if not 24 hours. But there might be, in some cases, states that will um, act to um, force the legislatures to reenact those bans. Okay, so the it would be instantly a national, it's already national in scope, but the response would be, from those 22 states, would be almost immediate. Um, how likely is the draft majority opinion that Politico received, how likely is it that it's going to prove to be the actual decision. And does the leaking, it shouldn't, but does the leaking, do you think, might it affect the final decision? In other words, can judges, even at the Supreme Court level, be influenced by public debate? Okay, so those are both really good questions. And whether how close it's going to look like the original decision is really going to depend on what's been happening in the last couple of months. So this was just a first draft. It was written by Alito. Alito and Thomas were going to have the most um, reactionary views on this, meaning radical to the right um, views. And so that may or may not sit well with, it certainly is, it is unlikely to sit well with Chief Justice Roberts, but you needed to not sit well with at least one other person. So that would be Kavanaugh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, or Gorsuch. Um, so if one of those justices thought, gee, we really shouldn't be overturning precedent this quickly, we need to think more about this, then it already could have been going through a different iteration at that point. And we just don't know because we don't really have a lot to go on what their views their views on. We have some to go on based on a, a case from a few years ago, but 
we're not, you know, we can't be completely sure. Okay. Uh, my guess is that it would have been pretty close with Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts not b- being somewhat uncomfortable, um, but but he would then just concur in the uh, outcome and write a different opinion. As to whether the leaking changes their views, the way I see this is sort of like the idea that in science, when you observe a phenomena, it, it changes the phenomena. It's just subconsciously I don't I don't think consciously these judge these justices will are changing their mind, but it's got to have some effect. We're all human. So the idea that um, the, the, the public outcry about this could have effect, but it could go either way. It could actually have the justices become more entrenched in their views or it could make them think maybe maybe I'm not right. And that doesn't mean they're being bullied. That means they're human and they pay attention to the world around them. So I know that people are are talking about this. Some people, the people, especially on the right, want to believe it was a left wing person who who um, leaked this. People on the left want to believe it was a right wing person. We have no idea who leaked this. We have no idea what their motives were. And um, some justices are saying you're not going to bully us. I think Thomas said that the other day. But people have a right to outcry that. In fact, that's maybe the justices should read the Constitution and understand that that's protected by the First Amendment to so protest I have, this. I have two I have two minutes here and I have two more questions. This one sure, I just I'm don't sorry. have an answer to. No, I'm I'm so glad you're you're with us talking about this. So there was another case, a Mississippi case on abortion, which was directed to the Supreme Court last year. Is it possible that the draft decision leaked to Politico is actually the decision on the Mississippi case, or is that not possible? No, it's not possible because Chief Justice Roberts has already um, has already verified that this was an authentic draft for Dobbs. So the other question that I have for you is. If the Supreme Court does what the draft suggests it's going to do, makes that decision, does that lead to other rights or in some cases perceived rights, uh, understood rights? to be potentially set aside in future arguments. In other words, it's a set of precedent. Absolutely. The substantive due process clause, the way they've analyzed it here is to say that it doesn't protect unenumerated rights. That means the right to contraception, the right to privacy, the right to same-sex marriage, even the right to interracial marriage. They're all at, they're all um, in danger now because none of those rights w- uh, people had h- for hundreds of years. They want something for 800 years they're talking about in this decision. If it doesn't have hundreds of years, then it's not a right. And of course, who had rights hundreds of years ago? Only a small set. Over the last few months, we've spoken with uh, Ron Foxcroft on this program Chairman of Fox 40 Industries, which includes Fluke Transport, trucking manufacturer, at least trucking company. Uh, Ron is also uh, through Fox 40 Industries into manufacturing and exporting the Fox 40 line of sports and safety products. He's also chairman of Tradeport International, which operates John C. Monroe Airport in Hamilton and LaGuardia Airport in New York City. So we've talked to Ron about the uh, situation as far as trucking and manufacturing and exporting and 
even finding people to come and work for you in this particular climate, what it's doing to business, what it's doing to our society. Mr. Foxcroft is back with us. How are you, Ron? I'm doing good, Roy, and I have the same feelings about you every time I drive by the gas station. And um, when you equate that to uh, filling up uh, one of our trucks, and we have about 125 tractors and 500 trailers, Roy, just to give you an idea, you know, the trip that you were going to take was going to cost you $400, and a, a year ago it probably cost you about 175 to fill up one of these big tractors that are essential for the supply chain management, it it could cost upwards of $2,000 every time you fill up a truck, depending on whether it's half or quarter or whether you have one tank or two tanks. Multiply that times 125. The other problem, Roy, in the trucking industry is um, the oil companies, and I am not being critical of the oil companies, but they require payment in seven days. So, you fill up a truck, it's 2000 bucks. pay it in seven days. Somehow, somebody in the distribution network has to pay for that cost. Yeah. And how long, when you fill up uh, the truck, uh, regardless of whether it's a quarter, half, or three quarters, once the truck is full, how long until that truck needs to be filled? Let's say how long until it gets down to a quarter of a tank. Well, Roy, uh, you know, we're a zero to 300 mile carrier, so it's not unusual for us to fill the truck up uh, twice a week or uh, every 10 days. So, and, and you know, Roy, I got to tell you, there's a little bit of a myth out there. It says, you know, the trucking companies are picking up this tab on the increase of the cost of the diesel fuel. All they do is pass it along. That's not entirely true, Roy. Yes, there is a fuel surcharge, which is charged to certain um, uh, customers that you're allowed to. However, if a trucking company is bound to a contract where uh, they're tied down for a year or two, sometimes you cannot pass it along. Hopefully, uh, you you can. The other problem, Roy, your employees. And, and you know, I'm going to be criticized for saying what I'm going to say, but we live in Canada and we drive cars. And obviously, your email will explode because people are are uh, bound to want to uh, direct everybody into public transit. Everybody's doing a good job directing people to public transit. The governments, I, I have to say, are doing a good job directing people to public transit. However, this is Canada. Ninety-five percent of our 200 or 250 employees drive a car to work. So, you know what? Their costs of living are going up, and where are they coming? Uh, obviously, uh, they're, they're turning to the government to help them, and shame on us for depending on the government to help yeah, us. Well, well, Ron, the governments are not exactly helping us with their massive tax increases. That doesn't help anybody. And, and then, you know, my, my definition of inflation, everybody's tired of hearing this, but it's when you go to the gas station or the grocery store in the same morning and you can't afford to fill up it either. But when you talk about the, the, the costs of filling up your truck and filling up your trucks, and this is industry-wide nationally, yeah. all the trucking firms are going through this. The independent drivers are going through this. Everybody is. Ultimately, the cost of the increases, or some of it, is going to be passed on to the end user, the consumer, is it not? I mean, I went and had uh, I, I had something sent out by courier a few weeks ago. There was a fuel surcharge 
on my bill. I understood it. I said, fine. It's not that massive. I get it. You're, it's cost more to deliver. It costs more for you guys to have your trucks and your planes on the ground and in the air. So I'll pay the fuel surcharge. But ultimately, it is passed on to the consumer in one way or another, isn't it? You are bang on. It's a ripple effect. It has to be passed on to somebody and somebody has to pay for it. And that's exactly right. There is a fuel surcharge and it has to be passed along and it hurts everybody. Namely, it hurts the consumer. The other thing, Roy, you know, I am not a negative person, but the timing of this carbon tax is atrocious. It's just terrible. And, and, you know, I, I want to applaud your, uh, the first guest that you had, Michelle, at the top of your, uh, show. And she was explaining the political landscape in, in Canada. And I don't want to be political, but here's the fact. The political leadership in this country and the province that I'm in, in the province of Ontario, spend all their time personally bashing the opponent. It's not about policy. It's not about cohesion. It's about how good can I bash personally my opponent? Roy, it's like the WWE without the music. (laughs) That's well said. That is really well said. So here we are where we are. The end user is the consumer. The consumer is working with whatever net income that consumer has after having significant amount of their income skimmed off the top by governments. We know what that's all about. April 30th was just a few days ago. So now yeah, you go to the gas station, as I did yesterday, 48 liters, 109 bucks. Insane. Um, and then I go to the grocery store, and I know I see the inflated prices, and I'm told more is yet to come. We understand that. The interest rate is going up. Inflation is going up. Hopefully, the rising interest rates won't tip us into recession. And, and I don't even want to say the word stagflation. But let me ask you, you as a business person, when you look at your the, the work you have to do, your manufacturing, your exporting, your trucking company, are you able to project with any degree of certainty what it's going to cost you to do business in all of those different areas over the next 12 months? Because if you can't do that, how in the heck are we supposed to? I'm going to give you a good answer to that, Roy. And by the way, I'm going to deny saying that in Canada we drive cars. I'm going to say Roy Green said that, so you can get bashed. You will get bashed. No, listen, Ron. We yeah. do drive cars. It's a huge country. We don't we have do. the public transport infrastructure that, that, that you know European countries have. We, we don't have these things. We drive to where we go. Times are hard for a government, for any politician to look us in the eye and say, you're going to drive less because I'm going to charge you more. I think at election time that's going to come back to bite. It, it really is. And, Roy, you know the other problem is hiring labor. You know that it's a very difficult situation. Before the pandemic, our industry was 22,000 drivers short. That's probably, I don't have the exact number, but I would have to take a stab, that it's at least 30,000 drivers short in the trucking logistics industry in Canada. Now, in our manufacturing, work ethic has gone by the storm. When you grew up, Roy, and when I grew up, your mother and my mother said, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the neighborhood. We qualified for that, Roy, you and I. But if you're the hardest working guy in the neighborhood, you're going to do okay. But there's work ethic has gone by the wayside. You know, when you uh, interview somebody today for a job, they say, how much 
What are the benefits? What's the vacation? And can I work from home? Well, in our business, we're in trucking, we're in manufacturing. We have to be at work. And, and you know, only 1% of our 225 or 250 employees can effectively work from home. People now are leaving the workforce if their employer doesn't allow them to work from home. Now, I will say this. Some people can work from home and be very efficient. And I will say that, and good for them. But it doesn't apply to everybody, Roy. So we have a terrible shortage of truck drivers, of labor. In Hamilton, where my business is, our health care system is short 700 employees. Well, partly because they're exhausted after 26 months. Fox, let me just ask you this question. You're the smartest guy I know. What do you consider the greatest economic threat to be? Is it inflation? Is it interest rate hikes? Is it potential recession to follow interest rate hikes? Is it the potential, let's even whisper the word stagflation? What is the greatest concern to you? And then I'll tell you what mine is. Okay. Uh, Roy, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I am one of the hardest working guys that you know. And you did ask me, how far out can we project or plan now in the uh, current economic economy? 48 hours. (laughs) It used to be 12 months, and then the next year you'd put your tariffs up by CPI, Consumer Price Index, which was about 2%. Right now, if you ask us at Fluke for a rate, we'll hold that rate for 48 hours. The three things, uh, first of all, what you just laid out, our biggest concern, all of the above, I I would have to include everything you just said, all of the above. But I can put it down and summarize it into three things. A, inflation, cost of doing business, cost of living. Number two, the labor shortage, the labor shortage, Roy. And I include truck drivers, tradespeople, general labor, the labor shortage today because of one of the things that you just talked about is a lot of people are very comfortable now working at home and working at home effectively. But in our business, you can't effectively work at home. You cannot drive a truck from home. No, you can't. Now, the third thing, Roy, and this may inflame some of your listeners, partisan politics. And let me give you an example. In 2006, you had two prime minister candidates on your national show. They disagreed on policy, but they did not personally bash each other. What they agreed on was the fact that they wanted to put a business plan in place that was good for Canada and the people that live in the country of Canada. We have got away from that. Uh, everything today in partisan politics is let's bash the opponent, let's bash the members of the other political party, and if we do that, we're going to get elected, and and it's too bad. Now, I will say this. It's not every politician. I don't want to paint every politician with the same brush because there's some good ones out there, but there's also some out there, all they want to do is yeah. bash their opponent. The perception, though, becomes reality, Ron, and the perception is the party's more important than the province or the country. Yes. That's yes. the public perception, and there's no reason for us not to feel that way, because they 
make us feel that way. Now, on that day, Election Day 2006, I had Stephen Harper and yep. Paul Martin on the program back to back. I remember that. First out of the gate. And it was Election Day. They were both running for prime minister. Paul Martin wanted to stay in the job. Stephen Harper wanted to take it away from Paul Martin. Stephen Harper was successful in taking the job. But they, as I recall those two interviews, they spoke about what they were going to do. Yes, they challenged the other party, but it wasn't the kind of uh, vitriol that we hear now. It's become so vitriolic that it turns people off. Now, let me tell you what my, my, what my greatest concern is. Yes. As far as economic threat is concerned. And I'm coming at it from the little guy in the corner trying to get through life, going to the grocery store, going to the gas station, trying to survive uh, beyond the policies that are thrown at me by political parties interested only in the, or largely in their own well-being. My concern is loss of public confidence. That, to me, is the greatest economic threat this country faces. I have to agree with you, Roy, because, you know, I, I, I tell politicians, once you're elected, take your political party affiliation and put it in the drawer, because now you're serving all the people of Canada and you're part of yep. one team. It's called Team Canada. Yes, sir. But that's missing today, Roy. You nailed it. That is okay, we have one minute. Concern. We have one minute. Really important here, because it all comes together. It all pulls together. The supply chain, you're in the manufacturing and exporting business or in the trucking business. The supply chain is a mess. How bad is it now compared to what it was in January of this year when we first started talking about it? What's it like today? It's more challenging, Roy. The cost of diesel fuel has just skyrocketed. Uh, As I said earlier in the interview, the timing of this carbon tax is just uh, flagrantly wrong. It's just, it's somebody that has put this carbon tax in place that have never gone through life doing CAP, covering a payroll. Roy, I'm not a negative guy, but things are not good in the supply chain right now. There's a new book, and uh, the title is Canada in Question, Exploring Our Citizenship in the 21st Century. Here's a quote from the book. There are growing forces that are changing, perhaps diminishing our sense of what it means to be Canadian. All right. Let's talk to uh, to our guest and the author of the book. Peter McKinnon is the author of Canada in Question, Exploring Our Citizenship in the 21st Century. He's President Emeritus of the University of Saskatchewan, also an officer of the Order of Canada. Professor McKinnon, thank you very much. How are you, sir? I am well, Roy. Thank you very much. How's our country? That is a great question. Uh, I wrote the book that you have uh, described so well because of the growing concerns that I have about our country and uh, and the future. Um, it seemed to me that there are centrifugal forces acting upon our citizenship uh, and that they uh, undermine our sense of what it means to be Canadian. Let me give you just one uh, example less than two years ago on Canada Day, the Halifax Chronicle Herald apologized for the Canadian flag and for the country over which it flies. 
we know that uh, we live in an era in which a lot of apologies are offered for a lot of things. And this was the latest in a long line of apologies at the time. But more surprising than most, I think, because it came on a day when a majority of Canadians appreciate their good fortune to live in this country. So I I think there are uh, substantial issues that are at work in our country that uh, that do uh, require us to reflect upon what it means to be Canadian um, in 2022. Yeah, I remember that story somewhat. Was the apology because they had printed the Canadian flag? What was the apology about, Professor McKinnon? Well, it was, you know, if you apologize for the flag, uh, you're apologizing. Um, and I took the apology as being for uh, some of the uh, activities, behaviors um, that they associated with the uh, with the country. If you're apologizing for the flag, you, of course, are by definition apologizing for the country over which it flies. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you know, just simply uh, a statement uh, that perhaps Canadians had more to apologize for than to be proud of. Well, that's just not so. I mean, I can give you a subjective point of view. I came here as a 13-year-old. I was privileged to become a member of the Canadian family. Um, I'm a proud Canadian citizen, multi-decade, became a Canadian citizen as soon as I could. I was in the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve. Felt it was significant for me to contribute in some way. Um, and, and And I look at this country and I look at my citizenship with absolute pride, because we have led in many areas. We've led in many areas in the world in the way we comport ourselves. Now, in in the introduction of Canada in Question, you write about your experiences with citizenship and Canada. You write about pride, disappointment, concerns, all part of the picture. But most of us may think of citizenship being represented by a passport which we may or may not know, Professor McKinnon, whether it's valid or not, we may not even know. What is, here's what I'm getting at. What is citizenship, really? When we're Canadian citizens and we have this incredible privilege to be members of the Canadian family, how should we see our citizenship? Well, I think, Roy, you've you've put it very, very well in describing some of your own experience. Um, Citizenship is... uh, is a sense of attachment to the country and a sense, I think, of positive attachment to the country. It, it is, by definition, a social concept. Uh, it's impossible to think about citizenship uh, apart from a collective. And so one of the most important questions that I think uh, underlies any discussion of citizenship is how does the Canadian population actually feel about the fact that they're Canadian uh, and again, there may be some, there are no doubt are some, perhaps um, more than just some, who really don't have too much of a sense of attachment to the country at all. They're there for the passport or for whatever of the benefits of the country fall their way. But citizenship is, is fundamentally a sense of uh, attachment, a belief that the country is a positive uh, force in their lives and in the world. And um, without that sense of attachment, it's fair to ask whether you have a sense of citizenship at all. Okay, so why do we need to talk about citizenship in 2022? And let me expand on that a little bit. 
Uh, I may want to talk about citizenship from a different perspective than my fellow Canadians. I lived that experience when I left Ontario to live in Quebec in 2007 and remained in Quebec for the next nine years. Now, while Quebec has twice voted to remain within Confederation, you may find a Quebecer's view of Canadian citizenship differs quite a bit from that of a Canadian from another province. So keeping that in mind as a sidebar, not insignificant sidebar, why are we talking about Canadian citizenship in 2022? Well, I think I think the sidebar you point to is excellent. There's always been uh, an interesting tension in the relationship between Quebec and the rest of the country. And, of course, two referenda uh, have taken place, uh, the second one far closer than the first, and uh, troubling for that reason. But um, it's not just uh, the Quebec-Rest-of-Canada uh, relationship. Uh, there are a number of other features of our, as you say, 2022 lives that point to the issues. And I think we, we begin a bit with identity politics. That is a kind of a sense of belonging more to particular groups that may be defined by um, sex, race, sexual orientation, disability status, those kinds of things. So we have identity politics. Uh, we have, I think, significant numbers of our population that kind of resort to the social media uh, in the context of uh, identities. And their uh, greater interest is in talking to one another and turning away from those from whom they disagree. Uh, we could argue uh, that um, one of our great values, and I think a positive one it is too, multiculturalism, we could argue that it is evolving towards multinationalism. And um, then you have the rise of populism, the sense of which is an underlying populism, and there's populism of the right, populism of the left. But underlying it is a sense of we versus them between uh, so-called elites and the rest of the population that features a highly rhetorical, um, denunciatory style which I think undermines um, citizenship. And uh, along with that, what I consider to be the decline of Enlightenment values, the, the slipping away from the idea that, that reason is uh, fundamentally important and has to be kind of the driving force about the way in which we approach issues. Okay. Um, take a break. I think that's there. A... And there are all kinds of other things. We have a prime minister who told the New York Times six days after taking office that Canada is the world's first post-national state and there's no Canadian identity. How does that fit into the Canada is in question position? Well, first of all, I think that the prime minister was uh, wrong when he made that observation. But but uh, more importantly, that observation reminded me of a very charismatic Quebec politician, Lucien Bouchard, who fought the 1995 referendum in Quebec, you may remember, in favor of the separation side. And he went around saying, Canada is not a real country. Canada is not a real country. We want to be a real country, our own real country. That was his key and central theme. And I was reminded of that, the Prime Minister's remark. I think, by the way, if I may add to that, that uh, this is the Prime Minister who shockingly, and I use that word uh, carefully, shockingly condemned the parliament he leads 
as founded upon colonialism or discrimination or systemic racism. No mention here of the evolution of democracy in the Westminster tradition over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Very simplistically, the parliament he leads founded upon colonialism, discrimination, or systemic action. I think that's a, a dreadful uh, comment, by the way, by the Prime Minister of the country. Um, you know, there's more compelling assessment of our institutions from the University of Moncton's Donald Savoie, who talks about a decline in the role of the House of Commons, a cabinet that is the focus group for the Prime Minister, rather than a decision-making body, a Senate that we all know has a historical and continuing legitimacy crisis, um, these are these are the fa- these are the frailties and weaknesses of our institutions, not uh, they're being founded upon a legacy of colonialism, discrimination, or systemic racism. No, and if we don't teach Canadian history to the young, and I mean Canadian history, all of it, to the young, when a statement like that is made by whether it's Justin Trudeau, in the case it was, or someone else, if you don't have the grounding in the Canadian history, you how do you respond? Um, well, if you turn away, walk away, you not pay attention. Maybe that's the uh, that's the most simple way to deal with it. It's not the most effective, but it's the most simple. But it's it, it, to to not teach where we have come from is again. I'm going to. I don't know if you agree with this or not. If we don't know where we came from, you know how the rest of it goes. We don't know where we're going. Uh, absolutely, and I think you point to a very very serious issue, and it's been documented time and time again that Canadians don't know very much about their history not nearly as much as they need to know in order to critically evaluate some of the pronouncements that are made, some of the uh, statements that are made. So, yeah, um, we need to do more and we need to do better in ensuring that Canadians understand their, their history so that they can critically evaluate the kinds of things they hear. You earlier in our conversation referenced polarization. Couldn't be more true. Left versus right has become more strident than ever. And there's the growth of populism in Canada. And it's no longer a case of, um, let me back up, facts. It's a case of let me defend my facts. So, uh, Professor McKinnon, left versus right, growth of populism in Canada. Where does, where does this fit into the equation? Where does this fit into, uh, into your book? Well, I, I think, uh, again, the us versus them stuff is, uh, is, is very pronounced in our culture today. Uh, you know, when we ask the question, what, where, where can the center hold or can the center hold? It's becoming increasingly uh, difficult to answer that question. I think one of the problems, Roy, is, uh, and you, 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 hear, you hear it colloquially, people talk about different ways of knowing. There's, and there's my way of knowing, there's your way of knowing, uh, look, uh, when you look at the world that way and that there are simply many different ways of knowing, then uh, what's the better way? Uh, you have your way of knowing. I have mine. You have your truth. I have mine. Not very much to talk about in that uh, world. Instead of saying, look, we have our views and we we put all of the views into, if you like, uh, um, a, a reference point and ask, you know, what's the better view? What's the stronger view? What's the more compelling view? You don't get there if it's just you have your way of knowing. I have mine. You have your truth. I have mine. Nothing much to talk about there. No, I mean, I see the emails. You're wrong. I'm right. End of story. 
and 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 facts be damned it's just i'm wrong you're right or you're wrong and i'm right facts be damned uh, we have we have just a minute left literally professor mckinnon let me take the second part of the title of your book exploring our citizenship in the 21st century what do we need to do well i think we need to uh um approach of the issues that i've described some of them i've described i think we need to approach them with a view to reform to a determination to change our institutions need to be reformed. Uh, Donald Savoie has made the compelling case for that. Uh, not our prime minister, by the way. Donald Savoie. We need to address the east-west divide in the country. Richard Sciant at the University of Moncton talks about an east-west divide, and his book is called A Tale of Two Countries, and the Ottawa River is the dividing point. We need to look at that. Why is that the case? So we need to, to approach the issues in a spirit of reform, not just describing them. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 